You just you still sound softer than Mike for some reason. I don't know why that is. Huh. I can adjust my <laughs> knobs. Maybe because Mike has a big fat mouth. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Welp. Welp. It did have an interesting observation this morning. Okay, check this out. I'll share this. All right. So, I don't know where this is going to go because it's just happened. But it's been raining here for like two days straight. And it's just like real crummy, kind of cold rain weather. So I had the communion service this morning. And then I went, uh, a few of us went out to breakfast after. And so I went outside and it's just like a really soggy day. And the, so the ground is completely just saturated. It's kind of gross out. And I thought to myself, I was like, man, it smells like fish out here. That's how soggy this ground is. Huh. And then here's, here's the crazy thing <clears throat> that happened. And I was like, and it just, as I was walking to my car, I was like, man, that can't be fish. Like that smell can't be fish because there's no fish here. I'm in the middle of Charleston, Illinois. You know, there's not a lake within a mile of me. And I was like, son of a gun, that smells like worms is what that smells like. And so it was a, a smell, a sense that I have always associated with fish. And the whole time, it was actually worms. Wow. Like from growing up, because I grew up fishing a ton, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we would always um, we'd always get, you know, stop and get earthworms or whatever, even when I was little. It's a very distinct smell. And I always associated that smell with fish. Literally until like an hour ago. <laughs> that is crazy, man. Isn't that weird? Yeah. And so I was, and I'm sure like, you know, the ground is so flooded that like earthworms are up. Like you see them on the sidewalks and mm-hmm. whatever. And maybe it's not even them. Maybe it's a certain like, y- like you smell the, the soil a little more or something like that. But it kind of blew my mind, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that, that smell that I've thought was fish for my whole life. Like it wasn't fish, so I'm sure we can pull something out of that. <laughs> I'm to, not sure. I just wanted to share it, man. Of like, well, smells smells are very weird, dude. How they how they trigger yeah. memories. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. Uh, that's that's a bizarre and and neuroscience is such a um, I don't know. It's such an inexact science that. Uh, I was never really compelled by in college when I'd study it in biochemistry stuff. Anytime they talked about the brain, it was just like, well, this is near that. So they probably interact or whatever, you know, because like the hippocampus is supposedly where memory is stored. But even that, all, all you really know about the brain is like you have some MRI imaging or something like that. And you tell somebody to remember something and you're like, oh, look, it's hot right there. That must mean that's where the memories are mm-hmm. and like how the brain works is so freaking mysterious. Yeah. But, uh, that's what I've always heard is that the olfactory sense is near the hippocampus, which is why you can just smell. 
this happens to me all the time. I don't even know what the smell is that I'm smelling, but it brings me back to like my basement when I was five years old. Oh yeah. You know, um, but I've never had it where I thought something was actually something else because of association. That's, I think that might just be because you're dumb. Well, (laughs) I don't know what earthworms smell like. Yeah, I can't, I can't summon that, uh, image as well. I have no idea. I mean, I'm just associating them with fish right now. So, well, it's not an image, you idiot. I, well, what do you call it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't <laughs> That's know. That's such an ephemeral sense. Well, like, I, I don't know. And this is this could be a stretch, but there is something about being Catholic and the engagement of our senses. Mm. And that's oh, yeah. actually important. Mm. And so even like DMAC talking about, you know, when you walk into a church, you should know it's a church. But you do that through your senses, through your sight, maybe your smell. I know incense honestly does like very, very much um, like, I don't know. I don't know what it triggers exactly, but you know that you're in a church when you smell that. Well, that was an interesting one for me because I never smelled it growing up. I don't think mm-hmm. I went to a single funeral okay. when I was yeah. a kid, and we didn't have adoration or anything. We certainly never used it at Mass. Yeah. But the first time I remember ever smelling incense <laughs> was walking into St. John's at, in Champaign when I was a junior yeah. in high school. Yeah. And it must okay. have, it was the afternoon, I think I've talked about this, but it was the late afternoon... Uh, and the sun was coming in. They must have just had benediction, and like these stained glass windows, this white marble, this dome with the Last Supper, the, the tabernacle, which is colored gold, right in the middle. Yeah. And the smell of incense was very powerful to me, uh, and it told me a lot. You know, I didn't, I don't know if I had any discursive thought. It was just like, wow, I this is a sacred place. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have any memories associated with it. It wasn't like, oh, this is like the good old days back in the 50s when I, you know, there were all these nuns and blah, blah, blah. It had no nostalgia whatsoever for me. It was just a sacred smell. Hmm. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. But I was thinking about something this morning. I had this weird little insight, which I'm not even sure it's an insight, but I was thinking about probably not. our podcast <laughs> and um, how much... Uh, of your thought like per day does the podcast <laughs> occupy? Well, we were about the podcast, so I was thinking about it. I don't think Actually, about it that I much. Was, I was this morning too as well. But I was thinking about like Catholic podcasts or Catholic like Twitter or Catholic music or art. And I was just thinking why, you know, to put the word Catholic in front of, of things... You know, there's like Catholic hospitals, Catholic churches, um, Catholic schools. But in some ways, I kind of feel like that that I wish we didn't have to put that word in front of stuff. Like we could just make things what they were supposed to be because we were Catholic. You know, I kind of think of our our podcast as not really a Catholic podcast. It just happens that we're Catholic people. I'm a Catholic priest, you're Catholic seminarians, and we're making the podcast we want to make, you know? Yeah, that's very true. Um, versus, like, if we had, 
tried to make explicitly a Catholic podcast to Catholic ends, you know, um, it would be more like Catholicism was a hobby or an interest and not just who we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and even Catholic, I mean, I, I prefer in a lot of ways Christian, um, like a Catholic Christian, because that even Catholic can kind of feel like, I don't know, a subculture or something like that, I don't, or a superculture that just mm-hmm. sort of like hangs above all these things. And like we, we try to conform all of what we do, whether musical, artistic, functional or whatever. But I, I don't know when it, it feels like if it's a deeply rooted thing, I mean, hospitals were invented by Catholics, you know, before the Catholic church in, existed, there were no hospitals or schools. I think, uh, I think it was all, I mean, there was education, but not in the way that we have it today. Right. Um, you know, do you go to an, uh, an art gallery and say like, that's a Catholic painting? I mean, what does that even mean? You know, I, I feel like Catholicism, um, I mean, the root of it is universal, you know, according to the whole, like it, it just organizes every part of your life so that no matter what you do, it's not like now I'm doing the Catholic thing that I do. And then I go to work and I do the not Catholic thing, you know, like everything you do is conformed to this way of life, which is a relationship. Um, but I don't know, I, I guess when the rubber meets the road, I, I don't know that that's a very cool insight, but, um, well, if I can jump off of that, yeah. uh, one of the, I think probably best critiques that I've heard from, I think there's a lot of Hollywood's producing a lot of Christian movies or I don't know exactly what the group is, but there's a Christian organization that produces like fireproof and then the God is not dead. Those types of very explicit Christian movies, you know know what I'm talking about? Where there it's like, it doesn't even, it doesn't feel like a truly human story that's going on. It feels like things are set up and narrated and produced in such a way that like it specifically points to this one single thing or even moments of Christianity in and of themselves. And I, I think that's like one thing I'm super grateful for with, especially Father Barron, Bishop Barron, um, the perspective that he has, like the way in which he lives his life, he's able to take in humanity as a whole. Like I want a human story because any truly human story is going to have like the divine life splattered throughout the entire thing. And so instead of trying to like create these moments where it's like, look, there's God. Oh, look, this is Christianity right here. I think what we were able to receive and, you know, hopefully how we're able to live now, it's, it's the backdrop in which everything else exists. And so it's not something that you point to necessarily. It would be like, without it, there, I don't even know how I would function without it. I, what, what, what would anything be? It's just the, the plane in which everything exists. And so that's why I love when we get together on the cam and have these like, we'll watch a movie together and just sit around and talk about it. There's no, you know, maybe the producers had no idea they were putting in Christian themes. But if it's a human story, then there's going to be, the Lord is going to be splattered throughout all of it. There's going to be Catholic stuff throughout all of it, whether they know it or not, you know? And I don't know, I guess... Yeah, that kind of points again to what you're talking about the 
humanity is not in competition with the divinity of our Lord. And which I know is one of the, one of the things that we like to talk about on the podcast and especially with the production of art, like you're talking about, you don't have to say like, this is, this is Catholic or Christian art right here. If it's good art, it's uh or good if it's good or beautiful or true you know it's going to be it's going to be of the lord and you're going to because christianity is humanity come to full stature you know it's just like it's the perfection of humanity is in christ and all of us who imitate follow him and are transformed by our relationship with him become fully ourselves and so when you see human beings being perfectly human making good art and and treating each other uh, well and, I don't know, becoming saints, <clears throat> then they, they don't have to conform to some... I mean, I still get stoked when you hear like, oh, Philip Rivers, quarterback of the San Diego Chargers, goes to Eucharistic Adoration, or, you know, Jordan Spieth. Did he win yesterday, by the way? He blew it, dude. No, he blew he it? Blew, yeah, blew. he lost. That's too bad. Because, you know, I was rooting for him partly because he's Catholic, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and there can be a sort of uh, self-referential, like he's on our team against the world, you know, but I, I was just sitting in Starbucks yesterday. I had one of these afternoons after a long weekend where I'm like, what do I even want to do right now? Yeah. So I went and took a book to uh potbelly and got a sandwich and ate it there. And then went across the street and got a coffee and just read, I'm reading uh Graham green. I finished the end of the affair in two days. Mike. Dude, oh. how good! Yeah, you, uh, after you left last week, uh, Mike recommended that book. It was so good. I have another story about that, but um, oh man, dude, I'm stoked right now. <laughs> and then I now I'm reading Heart of the Matter, uh, okay. so I'm, like, I'm on a green kick. But I went to Starbucks and I was just sitting there reading this book, and I didn't, I hadn't planned it out. I didn't bring any earbuds to block out noise or anything like that. And it was a Sunday evening, and the you know to. Uh, ladies behind the counter, you know, about my age or a little younger are kind of cleaning up and, you know, it's two hours till close, but it's still Sunday evening and I doubt they want to be there. And so it was one of those kind of feelings. But uh, I remember sitting in this chair and I had that whole, I don't know what made me think of this. Reading these British authors always makes me think of like civilization and (laughs) and convention and all this stuff conquest and i was thinking about chesterton's whole thing about like um trying to prove god or to prove anything that you just hold as sort of like a baseline axiom yeah uh it's it's like trying to prove that civilization is better than anarchy yeah and he's like every single thing you look at is proof of it it's like you don't it's not a scientific theory that you that you have to prove stepwise it's just like everywhere you look there's proof Hmm. that god exists just like there's proof that uh civilization is a good thing you know he's like look at this piano or this book or you know like all the things that it requires civilization to even have Hmm. and i was thinking about that with um sitting there in that store i'm like hearing people order their coffees and someone make it for them. And then they say, thank you. And the people say, thank you. Have a nice day. And all of this, like if we were just animals out there in the bush, like fighting each other in tribes and trying to kill animals so that we could survive and have shelter and warmth. It's like, you wouldn't have any of this convenience of me just sitting here on a Sunday evening, reading a book in the warm, out of the cold 
and people just being civil to one another and agreeing that this money is a va has this much value so you can have this coffee and my services and all this and it was just like one of those kind of reverie moments but then I, I had to leave because the women behind the counter like there were only a few people in there me and maybe a guy on the computer and somebody else and they were just talking very freely about somebody that they worked with that wasn't there and like just complaining and and gossiping and very loudly saying swears and things like that and it was very uncivil and kind of um I don't be too hard on them but it was just grating on my nerves and I couldn't sit there and relax hmm. and I thought to myself about like to the to the point about Catholicism you know because I think that what, what's exciting about you know like great Catholic art or great Catholic podcast or great Catholic anything is that it <clears throat> serves the end of evangelizing of bringing people into the church and therefore into a relationship that saves them and makes them who they really are or really should be but I think on a more basic level I was just like I wish that they were more human you know I I want the end that I have isn't so much just like butts and pews and people believing and agreeing with me about God. It's that I want everybody to, to be civil and happy and live in a society of justice and peace and, and charity and all, all of these things that Christ brings us, but that only Christ can bring us. Hmm. Um, you know, and it was just a, a little <clears throat> experience, but it had, it, made me long for that of just like everybody just being civil to one another is yeah. sort of like a baseline before you can get to any of the other stuff. Uh, does that make any sense? Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. You know, like I didn't want to preach at them like, Hey, believe this and you'll be saved. It was like, Hey ladies, let's, uh, you know, I don't know. There was nothing I could do. That's why I left. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just well, to, kind of, to love them and be good to them. Yeah, it's it's interesting because even within the story, there's... I, I just gave a talk last night on... Uh, like, tried to articulate just war theory to my life teen group. I don't know why, but that's a topic on our list. And I turned it into, like, a common good. I tried to turn it into what is the common good discussion. And... It, I did a terrible job, honestly. I was like so <laughs> disappointed afterwards. <laughs> I have no clue. Well, hopefully, you know, the Lord worked obviously through it. But even there in your story, it's like y'all share some idea of what the good is in in parts of your story. Like, yeah, civilization, being able to sit there and enjoy the convenience and to be able to reflect on life and like the goodness that God's given you. Civilization allowed you the opportunity to enjoy the pleasure of creation and enjoy the pleasure of, you know, being in this place and relaxing that rocks. But then even within your story, there's a breakdown of like, okay, well they don't know, they haven't necessarily encountered the same guy that I've encountered that my whole life is centered around that I feel that I know is the greatest good that you could possibly live. Um, and they maybe haven't encountered Christ there. And so even there, there's like, yeah, you share some things that are good, but then within the story, there's also kind of a disconnect between where you and the baristas, um, yeah, don't necessarily share the same common good or haven't encountered that same good 
good person. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah. No, it's true. Like, we inca- we inhabit the same exact world. That's, that's what's crazy, is you just... I mean, we're all so connected, you know? And not just... I mean, ontologically, we're all creatures. God has made all of us, and he knows all of our names, and... I mean, you can you can think of it that way. Like metaphysically, we're we're all siblings, but also like just the thick network that civilization itself, like the the practical uh, idea or invention of civilization, makes us so interdependent. You know, like the fact that I'm standing here at the standing desk talking to you guys through the internet you know like i don't know how any of this stuff works microphones computers the internet but somebody does and they make it and then i use it and now we're connecting and we just all inhabit this this world together and yet i can sit there and be totally conditioned i mean i'm still a sinner but you know my life my values my hopes my dreams Everything I do and want in, in, to varying degrees is conditioned by this relationship with Jesus. And, and somebody who can inhabit the same exact world, the same exact money, same exact economy, country, government, all of this stuff that we, we share uh, can have no idea what that even means, you know? That's just crazy. And, and to the point about, like, making Catholic things, I was just watching um, one of my great uh graces this week is that my nephews have gotten really into rocky <laughs> my brother texted me the texted me the other night and said would rocky be a good thing for the boys uh you know the bigger kids uh are there any is there anything objectionable and i was like not really how old are they the oldest is like 13 and then i think 10 and 9 or something okay. like that did you tell him it's the reason you're a priest <laughs> I told, this is the ethos of my life okay <laughs> that movie shaped me but uh so now they're watching last night they watched rocky 3 the night before they watched rocky 2 and so they're, they're just on a on a kick and i, I remember it, what's cool about it is i remember the exact same time in my life where i was i watched one and then i was like mom can we go to the video store i want to get the next one and um now of course you don't have to go to the video store you just go on apple tv or something but it uh last night after masses after i got back from starbucks i was like you know what i kind of feel like watching rocky one i haven't watched that in years and uh the amount of catholicism in it i it never registered with me it's just every like rocky has a crucifix next to his bed in his crappy apartment Mm. um there's a scene where he's talking to the loan shark that he breaks people's thumbs for. And the guy is being, the guy, even though he's like this kind of skeezy dude who takes advantage of people who work at the docks, he's like very fatherlike to Rocky. And Rocky runs up to him after he gives him like $500 to train and says, oh, you know, Tony, you're going to be at the fight. And they're standing right in front of a, a grotto of the Virgin Mary before he gets back into his Cadillac to drive away. And it's just like, I don't know if it's just Philadelphia where they where they filmed it is so... But, I mean, you you don't have to shoot that scene right in front of that thing, you know? Uh, Rocky prays before the fight and makes the sign of the cross and he's, you know, watching TV with 
with Adrian in, in their in her house and there's a before uh Polly has this like drunken rage where he takes oh, a I baseball hate. bat and like starts crushing everything in the house because he's mad there's I a sign that scene. I hate that scene too but I never noticed there's a sign on the wall right in front of where he's doing this that says god bless our home <laughs> I, I'm just like it's everywhere you know and this is such a human story and Stallone is a Catholic and through the rest of the movies like he would actually go to the priest before the fight and have him quote throw down a blessing yeah. Uh, but in the first one, it's just very subliminal. And I thought like, this is, this is how it's done. You know, like this human story that touched me and has touched so many people One best picture in 77. Uh, it's a Catholic story and I, you can't even say why, you know? Um, yeah, it's true. And then, and I mean, I'm just going to go on God is not dead. Cause that's the Christian movie that I've seen. I just remember thinking when I watched that, I don't believe you. I just don't believe this is a real thing. I don't believe this is a real story. And I never, ever for a second invested myself into the story. I always felt like an outside bystander. And it just never hit home for me in any way, shape, or form. Like, all this is fabricated. But with, yeah, I mean, a good movie. Dang. We're going to watch Calvary tonight. In oh, the, that's in such the a good movie. That's a great movie. Oh my gosh. And I, th I think there's a great joy because in a truly human story, there's no need to like cut in or cut corners or make things lighter than they actually are. Paper, over, just, paper over the warts of humanity. Yeah. Like let's just whitewash this story and we'll have one guy who's really mean, one guy who's really good and he'll be the Christian and the mean guy will be the atheist. And then like, we'll just play it out from there. That's that's totally not it, you know? And so I guess I, when I see those things, I want to enter into it. And that was just the feeling that I had. And I will say this also, God is Not Dead. I actually know people who watch that movie and it, like, really changed their hearts as well. So I don't mm. want to totally generalize it right. um, of, like, this this terrible thing because I think they, it does do good stuff. Um but it never it never hit home for me. I I just never believed the story. Relax. But maybe just a question to ask is like, okay, um, then what's the turning point? Like, where does the rubber hit the road? Because uh, I know it's cool knowing your guys' stories, um, Connor. Of yeah, a lot. A lot of guys your age probably had a similar experience to watching Rocky. And somehow it did like very much play a part in your relationship with Jesus becoming a disciple, becoming a priest. Like Metz's story of growing up in a basketball culture and the discipline and things there that like helped lead him and shape him to to seminary or whatever. Like we see these these people in all different walks of life who have surrendered completely to to Christ and then we see people in the exact you know with almost the exact same circumstances situations that could have gone a lot of different different ways and in some ways okay it's above my pay grade to ask that question but and that's okay. Like that's that's God's initiative. It's not mine. But it's at least an interesting topic to say. Okay, Connor, why did Rocky, you know, point you towards 
Christ and his church in a life of sacrifice as a priest? And why has it probably pointed other guys to, like, you know, roid out and <laughs> just want to work out all the time and waste their lives? Oh, no, know? that's also Father Connor. Well, <laughs> I'm totally roided out. Yeah, no, that is, that's true. That's true. <laughs> no, that's a great it, question. I, and I was kind of thinking is. of that. And it, and it is, it's above, it's above our pay grades to mm-hmm. answer that question. Like that's up to God. Like we respond to his, his free gift, but it's an interesting question, if nothing else, to try to like get at that mystery a little bit. Well, it's all about the head fake, you know, it's like you think, you think you're doing one thing, but you're actually being guided in another way. And I, you Dude, know, you think you're smelling fish. And you're smelling it does, warm. It connects, man. That's dude. It, man. Dude. That's it. Absolutely. No, you associate yeah, one with the other. Um, oh, man. That's Nailed very good, it. Juice. Wow. I'm stoked right now. Now I'm Good not going to cut out what you say. Cut it. <laughs> cut it. Let's end it. Um, no, but I think that, you know, like I think about this with the youth group where I basically just had gym night for a year. Yeah. Uh, and the point of it wasn't like, I think it's really important as a priest that, you know, kids play soccer on Friday nights. What was the, the reason for it? The only reason I was there playing with them was because, you know, I wanted them to know me and I wanted to know them so that we could build relationships and then I could, you know, teach them. And now I've got these kids coming to Bible study and they did the Via Crucis and, um, and I, you know, who knows in God's plan, what, like, my relationship to them and their their knowledge of me and the things that I'm teaching them will have as effects in their life. That's not up to me, but I know from my perspective that like I was doing things. Uh, I, I they only wanted to come play soccer, mm-hmm. but I I was leading them somewhere else, and not in a disingenuous way, but for their own for their own good. And that and I, I thought about that watching the movie last night, uh, kind of with fresh eyes. And just the things about Rocky that I guess I admired and still do were like, you know, although he was sort of this simple bruiser with kind of an immoral job of he, he's still like from the very beginning, the only time we ever see him actually shaking somebody down for money for this loan shark, he has mercy on him. He doesn't break his thumbs, even though he's supposed to. And then he has to bear the the scorn of his boss who's like i'm not running a charity case when i tell you to break somebody's thumbs you got to break them and he you know he feels bad but he's just a good hearted person uh that's in a tough situation and he's a bruiser and not that smart doesn't love fighting but um i think i've mentioned that one of the tropes throughout that series of movies is that he doesn't really love boxing uh it's just his way to kind of prove himself or I don't know, discipline himself to do something with his life and be someone, you know, and he becomes the champ. But also like how he treats women, um, you know, with respect and and standing up for them and uh, how he treats like Polly, who's this just an idiot and a drunk and kind of a sour human being. But he treats (laughs) him with such love, you know, and doesn't react with vengeance. He just kind of understands and all of these like really twisted situations where Polly on Thanksgiving wants Adrian to go out with Rocky and she's been make, making a turkey all day. And he's like, oh, is the turkey the thing, the reason you're not going out? Well, you want the bird? You can go out in the alley and eat the bird. And he throws the turkey out into the, the alley. 
and and then Rocky's just like he doesn't react. He doesn't get all mad. He just tries to make the situation good. And uh, <clears throat> the fact that he doesn't really think he's going to win, and he doesn't even need to win. He just wants to go the distance. Like he sets his own realistic goal, and and that to him, no matter what other people think, to him that's an accomplishment that he can be proud of. And I don't know, just so much about that character. It was not, it's like you say, Mike, my, my, this is one of the reasons I don't like superhero movies that much, or even, uh, God forbid, Star Wars, you know, is that it's just Take too, it it's too black and white, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's too, these are good guys, these are bad guys. Um, and what's, I guess what's really real to me or really compelling is, uh, is the in-between, you know, like where it all gets worked out in our own hearts of uh, like the good and evil interplay in, in your own inner experience. Um, and I, I guess that's what I, looking back, admired and what drew me to want to be better about Rocky, even though that it's this, it's kind of a bizarre movie to inspire you, but it really, it really inspired me. Dogs go to heaven. Yeah, that question. Um, I don't know. I was reading. I took a break from it for a while. I read uh, uh, Devil in the White City. And then I just finished um, All the Light We Cannot See, which was a very good novel, actually. But I picked back up. Who, after who I, is that by? Uh, Anthony Doerr or something like that. Like D-O-E-R-R. Okay, cool. Um. And it's got, it's very, like, it's got all kinds of reviews on Amazon. It's got more reviews on Amazon than even, like, Unbroken or a book like that. And actually, Baron just did a review. I've been on, hearing a lot of stuff about that book. It's good, man. It's very, it's very good. It's extremely well written. So it's, it's like parallel stories. And so each chapter is one and just goes back and forth. And then they kind of come together at the end. <clears throat> is it a Catholic book? I only read Catholic books. Well, <laughs> then this is the book for you. Let me tell you why. Uh, no, and so it, like one chat, it's World War II era. One chapter is about this German kid um, who's getting kind of like recruited and brainwashed for the Hitler youth and ends up fighting um, for the Nazis. And he's very smart with radios. Um, and so just how it's written is very interesting. And then the next chapter is about uh, a French girl who's a couple years younger than this kid. And so her and her dad have to flee Paris, but the girl is blind. And so the whole, like her perspective of the book is written and described like through the eyes of a blind person, like how she perceives the realities around her and stuff. So it's a, it's a great, great book. And Baron had, Baron had some very cool um, insights, very similar to what we have been talking about here of you know the seeds of the word are certainly there um and yeah maybe not everybody would see it but they're certainly there but anyway actually my point in that was of so i finished that a couple days ago and i picked back up the diary of a country priest um which i really like that book too and it's it's just it's extremely boring to read honestly (laughs) i'm gonna go ahead and agree with that (laughs) <laughs> Did you not like it? Um, I didn't finish it. I, I, you know, there were parts that I really got into, but 
and I might not finish it because it's very boring to read. But this guy, like, it just reads like you're reading someone's diary. There's not like a structure to it. Almost, it's I've never read anything like it. But the part I was reading, I think it was last night or the night before, and he had gone to some lecture. This young priest had gone to some lecture about like the church during the Reformation or something like that. And he said a bunch of people were there for this lecture as well. And there was a bunch of just like bored indifference at this lecture. Hmm. And the priest's insight in it was like that use years ago that would have made me very mad. You know, I would have wanted to kind of like sound the alarm and get these people fired up and like chastise them or at least be frustrated with them for their seeming indifference towards like the realities facing the church. But his insight is that now he actually admired their people in their indifference because it shows faith that nothing is going to shake the Catholic Church. And so how I read his insight was he probably went to this lecture and people that were there had no idea what they were talking about. We're probably just there because it was a church function or something like that and could have cared less about the state of the church or like what was happening, um, you know, just a general apathy towards the church, which we see a lot today. And this priest in this book, his move is not to be frustrated with that and not to like yell and scream at them to get them to wake up. But it was an admiration for their faith that, yeah, nothing is going to ch- shake the chair of Peter. Nothing's going to shake the church. So why worry about it? Hmm. Um and so it's interesting. It's not, and it's not. I don't think advocating to not engage in important debates, issues, topics, etc., or take a stand on things. But it is very much a way of seeing the world. Of like, yeah, that's up to God, you know, to work in in their hearts, and I'm going to try to respond to him in my life. But me fretting about like what they're fired up or do and don't understand is not going to help anybody anybody so it's just another i don't know what made me think of it when you were um describing all that rocky stuff but it is kind of another angle on it if nothing else yeah like it doesn't bother me so much that rocky's catholicism doesn't come out with him like evangelizing people or or going to church a lot in that movie you can just you can just kind of tell his faith from the way he treats people and the way he comports himself throughout the movie, you know, and Mm -hmm. to expect everybody to be interested in the Reformation is unrealistic. You know, Catholicism is a, is a way of life. It's not a set of ideas. Sure. Um, I had a, this is my story about the Graham Greene book I read read this week and it kind of connects weirdly to what you just said, Rob, Mm. because I went to a lecture at university of Chicago on Wednesday (laughs) And like I started that book, the end of the, it's not very long, it's like 160 pages, but I started it Monday afternoon, my day off and read like half of it. And then Tuesday I finished it. And then Wednesday I went up to this lecture and I was just thinking about, um, the whole thing that the idea that really intrigued me about that book, because it's from the perspective of this guy who has this affair with this married woman who it's kind of starts in media arrests where she's he hasn't seen her in years Mm. and somehow like kind of connects to her again uh through her husband who's always been this kind of idiot 
civil servant who never never knew it, even though it was so obvious that they were having an affair. Um, and their marriage is kind of loveless and and just formalities. But uh, long story short, he's kind of ner- the husband's kind of nervous that something's going on. And in a moment of weakness, confesses that he's been thinking about getting a private investigator to follow her. And this kind of plants this seed in the guy's mind that who, who's a writer and just sort of neurotic and lonely. And he ends up hiring the private investigator to follow her, even though he hasn't seen her in years. Um, to find out like who the, because he's so jealous, the idea of her being with another man, you know. Uh, so long story short, uh, not to ruin the book, but what what's actually going on is that she has made a vow to God who she doesn't even really believe in. And um, she's not Catholic. And and this guy that she's going to visit is this like hardcore rationalist atheist who wants the word God to be like stricken from the dictionary and just like form a, a generation of people who've never heard of this poison called religion and can just live their lives and stop dreaming about heaven after death and make earth heaven on earth you know the typical kind of modernist dream and uh he when he discovers this he becomes jealous of god and the jealousy of god meaning god's own jealousy toward us in the bible uh is sort of a a strong theme that that god wants us to himself you know um he wants all of our love and and like setting it within that context of a love affair between human beings, um, it was just so fascinating to me. And and this lecture, it was not really a lecture; it was a like kind of a panel symposium of three professors uh, at University of Chicago. It was on Rene Girard and mimetic desire. You know that whole idea of scapegoating and like Girard's oh, idea yeah. was that we don't want things that desire like all things in human life is a social phenomenon it's not just i lack something so that i need it you know um maybe with basic desires like food and water and things like that but when it comes to like i want that car or i want that phone it's all mimesis meaning like somebody else has it or wants it and therefore i want it you know and this this is the origin of society is that that mimicking of desire wanting the same thing as someone else creates violence um and society is formed by like blaming somebody for this inherent human i don't know conflict and then killing them basically like scapegoating a a person or a group of people and that's that's how societies are really formed is a common enemy you know and they were talking about that and uh it was kind of interesting but there was one professor there who's kind of a a well-known professor at university of chicago and i was interested to hear he's got a very thick french accent and i was paying very close attention leaning forward trying to understand him and he had some interesting ideas uh about this whole mimesis mimesis and jealousy and things like that so anyway i tried to ask a question at the very end and it was so weird, you know, like you, you're with all these smart people and it's not, it's not a super intimidating atmosphere. There's not a ton of people there at this really nerdy lecture, but I'm the only priest, at least dressed as a priest. And, <laughs> um, so 
sitting in the back and and I, like as soon as I have the idea to ask a question because I think of something kind of interesting, uh, my hands start to sweat and I'm like, why am I nervous asking a question? Uh, but then I ask it and and basically get shot down. I won't go into the details, but it was just kind of like this this fancy French guy sort of just told me like I can't answer that question because it's not correctly asked you know <laughs> like you don't understand <laughs> the terms and and it's true like I had no place asking a question because I'd never read a single work of Girard <laughs> I just thought it sounded like an interesting topic <laughs> so then at the end uh you know like these people who are mostly students at the university and it's very hoity-toity um kind of culture where people are talking about Kant and uh, Hume and blah, 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 <laughs> things that I've heard of, but never really read, <laughs> you know, I could, I could fake my way through, uh, a, a intelligentsia conversation where I'm like, oh yes, I know all about Kant and the categories of perception. Categorical and, imperative, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that so interesting? Aren't I so interesting? <laughs> I'm very smart. I can talk about Kant. More I have like many, it. many leather bound books, <laughs> but then I, it was just like, I don't have anybody to talk to here. I'll just leave and go to my car and, and drive home. And as I'm walking out of the lecture hall, I run into the professor. And he's out there in his bow tie smoking a pipe on the sidewalk. And it's this dreary April day, kind of cold. And I said, well, I'll go up to him and talk to him. And I mentioned that, you know, I'm going to be at this other thing about Cardinal George that he's speaking at next week. And Cardinal George ordained me a priest. And he's asking me where I am and what I, you know, what parish I'm at and stuff like that. So we're having exchanging courtesies. And I was like, you know, that question I was asking, what is blah, blah, blah. And I kind of tried to clarify what I meant. And he's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and it seemed like he was engaging me and like interested in, in talking about this. And then so he makes his point. And then I start to say, like, you know, I was just, have you ever read Graham Greene's The End of the Affair? And he hmm. looks at me and he says, no. And I had a point to make basically about the whole jealousy thing and like what what is desire of a person you know as a person you can you can say don't covet your neighbor's wife and that's a that's a whatever a commandment against this mimetic desire of like this this kind of desire that causes violence uh wanting the same woman but really wanting her as an object not as a person you know whereas god's love is always it respects us as hum as persons and not doesn't want us in a possessive way, you know. And I think that human beings can can imitate that. We can want people for their own good, not not just to satisfy some need of ours. Anyway, not to ramble too long, but I I start summarizing the plot <laughs> to Graham Greene's The End of the Affair and start talking about like the love affair and the private investigators and blah 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 to get to this point about jealousy. And at this moment, like while I'm in the middle of of describing the plot that sounds like an Agatha Christie novel. I don't know if he's ever even heard of Graham Greene. He must have heard of him, but <laughs> it's, it sounds so weird and trite. This guy comes out of the lecture hall carrying a bag and he, and he just says to the pro professor, are you going to supper? And he takes the pipe out of his mouth and says, yes. And then looks at me with kind of like these, this goodbye in his eyes. <laughs> and I just was like, okay. Well, I'll leave you to it. Like right in the middle of a thought. I was in the middle of summarizing this book as quickly as I could to make this point. And it was just like, okay, see you later, idiot. Stop talking to me about this book. Like that's how I, how I experienced it. 
and he may have just he may have thought I was going to supper or whatever, you know, um, or he may just be an absent-minded professor and not meant anything by it. But when I started walking back to my car in the opposite direction, it was just like this pit in my stomach of like, I'm an idiot, I'm a faker, I like I'm not smart, I'm not well-read, and I'm trying to impress this fancy big smart professor who's well published and well known and i'm nobody and it, i felt like one of the characters in green's novel uh, you know like i like i i had my fakeness exposed you know oh man and you know it was like the most bizarre thing dude because all i had was just this <laughs> kind of drizzly i had like eight blocks to walk to get to my car and in that time, I was like trying to relate it to, to Jesus and be like, okay, you are the, your opinion is the one that matters and you actually know me. Yeah. Why am I so worried about what somebody who's never met me thinks just because I've heard of them mm. and because they're obviously smart? Um, but like that, I, I don't know what it was, but that like the Dude, whole experience, do you know what I'm saying? That a self-reflective walk through drizzly rain oh, at the University of Chicago. Exactly. It's that kind of belongs, a depressing place. Well, it just belongs in a Graham Greene novel. Yes. Like, that belongs <laughs> in the end of the affair. Absolutely. Wow. Very interesting. No, and uh, but the point that you were... Well, I don't know. What is the point you were trying to make? I don't know what the point was, but it was... It, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what the point was. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, it, it, could, it could be, is Catholicism this set of ideas, or is it this way of... Like, I, I felt that Graham Greene's novel is very, very Catholic and sometimes explicitly so, but it was about okay. human beings in this very like human struggle, very petty and, but it was sublime in the way that like it ended and everything like that. And here I was at this conference about Catholicism and I just didn't feel at all at home in it, you know? And but when I was walking back through the drizzle, I was like, yeah, well, this is where the rubber meets the road mm. is like, do you do you care what people think of you or are you just going to go back and be a priest and do what you're supposed to do? You know, mm. uh, did you come to this lecture to be thought a smart person or did you come actually to be enriched and have your soul elevated? Because maybe this is the most elevated most soul elevation you're going to get is being humiliated in the rain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That novel. I, yeah. The great, the great lines in there about the, it's like the ominous you that's present throughout the entire book that, uh, cause even there it's similar to Brideshead, like all of the diaries, all of the letters, all of the conversations, there's always this capital Y O U that the characters are talking about and uh yeah just to see him always there god is god is that big you obviously and that was kind of a big clicking point for me in the book um but one of the one of the big struggles i had with it um was the female character they're all very intriguing characters i really do think that's like some of my favorite parts about Graham Greene when he writes, he has really good characters. And there's something about the combination of intelligence, but also, yeah, the self-reflection so that you really get to know the character from how they see themselves as well. Mm -hmm. And specifically, there's a part when um, the main character gets the diary of the woman that he's sleeping with through the private detective. 
And man, this is tough because I don't know if I should ruin the book or not. But um, I would you... like to read it, but if you feel like you need to ruin it, go ahead. <laughs> all the listeners are probably like, no, <laughs> just mute it. No, all the, any listener of Three Dogs North has already read that book, dude. Totally. That's, that's Anyone true. who hasn't read that book is a chump, am I right? <laughs> no doubt. No yep. doubt. Um, when you read her diary with the main character, uh, you start to see like so, some of the most beautiful and honest prayers towards this you mm. that has been present throughout the whole book. Yeah. And it, it just smacked me right in the face when it all kind of, you realize who she's writing to, who the diary is authored for and kind of her, her internal feelings and like perspective on all of these actions that on the outside look like gravely immoral. You know, if I was sitting giving spiritual direct direction to somebody or someone came in and asked for advice, I would never say like go and have an affair with somebody. And then when you make a promise to God and you still have this desire to be loved, but your husband's like, there's no love there, go and find other people to sleep with and try and fulfill that, that huge gap that you have within you. But these are all these things that like these objectively immoral things that I read as a seminarian who's studying like, you know, moral theology has his head in books like, Oh, that's, that's immoral. That's immoral right there. But when she talks about it, these are like these pursuits. They, they came off to me as pursuits for divine love mm-hmm. and like so clearly that. And as a matter of fact that, you know, the Lord is certainly encountering her in these disappointments of searching for love and kind of all the wrong places and things like that. But it was really difficult for me to see these actions or read about these actions that were... Yeah, they were they're immoral and I would never recommend that anyone go and do these things. But at, for her as a character, as an individual, this was her encountering the Lord and the Lord like coming after her in this very real way and her receiving God's love and realizing that nothing else is going to satisfy except for God's love. Um mm-hmm. and this this you that she's falling in love with while beginning to believe in him and all this through like terrible characters, through these weird people, um, she almost turns out to be like this very saintly figure. Really, man, this is the second time Graham Greene's done this to me. She is, she's like exalted towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's truly. She's basically almost, implies that she's a saint. Yeah, almost this miracle worker. But if you just looked at her life, she would be a cheating wife and like at some points even kind of just giving herself to different men, trying to win them over and seduce them and sleep with them. To make her feel good about herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I started to think like, I don't know. What does this mean? <laughs> well, that that is, I'm just trying to relate it to something I've read, but that sounds a lot like Lady Julia from Brideshead, mm-hmm. who is just mm-hmm. an enchanting mm-hmm. character. Um, and it's very interesting reading Brideshead because at least like my experience, I mean, you are just in love with Julia by the end. And there is a certain like honesty. There's a certain self-knowledge that she has in her 
sinfulness. She says it at the end. She's like, I've always been bad, but I'm not quite bad enough for God to give up on me. And it's just, um, it's very attractive. I don't know how, how else to say it. And I don't even know why it is. You know what else I was thinking about Metz though, of a character. I was just like relating to this as you were describing her. And I've never put the two together, but, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character in silver linings playbook Ooh. <laughs> but it's very it's very similar. It doesn't have necessarily the like the fullness of redemption at the end, but it's certainly moving that way through very broken characters. And you hear her story in that movie, man, and it is nowhere near moral. Like nowhere near moral. Right, but right. you are in love with her by the end of that movie, man. Yeah. It's yeah. very. That's a fascinating insight. I'm gonna read that book, dude. That's a very good movie too. It is yeah. a very good movie. Yep. And so, uh, I, I believe those things. Like I, I found myself in the end of the affair, having sympathy for the guy who is having an affair with a married woman mm-hmm. and being like, why won't she just love him? What the heck? <laughs> right. And then me having sympathy for this woman who's like cheating on her husband and has abandoned her lover i'm like man she just wants love why can't somebody just love her like what i want her to be happy i i totally believed that story i invested myself entirely into that book into all these different characters and it was just honest it was mm-hmm. honest and it was human like i've had that experience where yeah i'm looking for love and this you know this girl that i dated or this thing you know that i whatever was doing to try to make me happy, it wasn't doing it. And so I know exactly how you feel right now. And it's not something super explicit. It's not something you don't even know who she's writing to until, you know, it kind of comes out that she's talking. She has this deep longing for God. And yeah, I I think I related to it in a lot of ways um, for my own pursuits for love and things like that, just because it was such a human story. And I don't know if it's just maturity or something like I'm always a little wary to think that I'm mature, but I think that, you know, years ago I would have thought that everybody just needs to, in order for everybody to be happy, everybody just needs to do this, you know, stop doing that and start doing this. When you read a book like that, you realize that, uh, I don't know, there's no, there's no blueprint for finding your way, you know, it's. God who's God's driving the car and we're just along for the ride and and yeah we can try to jump out and we can try to fight him and and everything but even my work as a priest I, I kind of feel like how do you there's no way to encounter a person and already have and to respect them as a person coming from where they're coming from and going where they're going and you just happen to meet them at this crossroads in their life where they want to talk to a priest like to come with some kind of vision or preconceived notion of what their life has to look like now makes no sense to me. Uh, and it's, and it's unjust. It's not, it doesn't respect the authentic movements of, of the spirit going on in their own life. And you just, I don't know. I think that it's in that book or, or another one I was reading where someone said you can, you can make a long road trip in the at nighttime just by seeing what the headlights show you, you know, like all you really need to see is 
is you know 100 feet in front of you whatever the headlights yeah. show and you and you can get a long way that way uh on the right path and that that to me is a perfect image of how my life has been it's like at any given moment you know sometimes you make turns and there are curves and difficult roads but all you really can know or need to know is what's right in front of you what's the next thing you do um and the thing that really struck me about that book and especially the the main character who is narrating it was i think he was reading the diary and you know you said juice that it's really attractive this whole idea of of people being this mixture of good and bad but to him it was repulsive because mm-hmm. he said something like um you know, if it's that easy to be a saint, to just make one leap and, and, and to make a vow, you know, and to, to do what she did, which was basically like, just guess and test. It was like, should I try to give all my love to God, even though that's really hard and he's not here to tell me I'm beautiful and to hold me and to make me feel good. Um, but it, I know that that stuff doesn't satisfy. Let's just try this, you know. And she does, and she becomes a kind of saintly character. And she's more like the publican than the Pharisee. She She's very self-accusatory that she's a fake and a phony and she's lied and all this stuff. But when you read it, you read kind of from the God's eye view. You're very um, yeah. merciful yeah. toward her and you want her to be happy. And you, you see that God is not less merciful than me. If I can see the good in this person, fictitious as she may be, but I mean, it's a very real portrayal of a human story. Like, how much more does God just long for this person to find him? Mm. Uh, and he said, if it's that easy, then, then I'm going to have to do it. You know, then anybody can do it. It's not just people on pillars in the desert in, in the, you know, first three centuries after Christ. It's not just monks yeah. and nuns and priests, but everybody's capable of being a saint. And that scared him. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it leaves it unresolved at the end. But, like, he had his own encounter through her of what that looks like and it and it scared him uh, uh see i saw the end of him just beginning his encounter right i, I did too and that's and what's well, just the beauty of it because yeah i think it it doesn't respect a lot of things when you say yeah you just get this sense of at least i have i've gotten it from being in the parish of such a short time yeah I am only here for like a couple of months and it could be said, oh, I'm only here for a couple of years. It's the same, essentially the same thing. You're here for a glimpse of people's lives and to have the opportunity to, yeah, be present in that life is an incredible thing. But to think like everyone that I encounter needs to be doing one thing, the same thing that I think is right. Yeah, it doesn't respect, (laughs) it doesn't respect the individual. I, I think in a lot of ways, like I can't possibly really meet you where you are because you need to be doing this one thing that I'm that I'm that I'm t- saying that it is the right way. And so like these stories, they speak the truth that God is present in all things. And even in the places like affairs and cheating on husbands and sleeping with lovers, like, yeah, the Lord is okay, what's the next step right there? Yeah, the headlights right in front of the car. And like being able to have little conversations, little moments with people like that, where, man, our lives look totally different, but they look similar in that God is 
working right now in your life. Um, and it also walks that, next... that nice line of like, it's not like, oh yeah, just have your affairs and you'll be fine. You're, you're a good person. It's like these people are seriously miserable human beings because they're, they're just plunging headlong into, into sin. And yeah. he doesn't paper over that either. Like that does make you really unhappy, but it, it, the reason that it's good or that God allows it is because it drives you even more headlong into his love into the only thing that will really satisfy. Do you agree? Absolutely. And yeah. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. That novel gives you the God's eye view of, of people's lives and these things that you would not expect and are certainly not ideal. Like the Lord is weaving all these things together in it. Yeah. It does give this great sense of trust. Um, and, Man, he has some great lines about freedom and talking about like the saint being the real free actors throughout life. And man, I just totally agree with that. That the saints are the ones who they're diving headlong into it. And sometimes it looks like the big sinners, but it's just deep pursuit for love and fulfillment. And, you know, Baron's great line if you're running away from the Father, you're running towards the arms of Jesus, you know, because he's all over the place. And, his love is always coming after you. So it just gave me this great renewed trust, this deep faith in it. Um, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And fear down.